Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today, I sit down with Dr. Barry Brooks, Dr. Deborah Pat, and Kevin Scorsone to discuss the world of legislative oncology. We discuss the disparities in the oncology space and how legislation can make a major impact moving forward. We also discuss the new ENCODA comprehensive state legislation tracking tool and how ENCODA is becoming the go-to resource for all legislative oncology educational materials. Well, welcome to the PQI podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pat and Dr. Brooks and Kevin. I'm thrilled to have the three of you join me, and I know so many people know Dr. Pat and Dr. Brooks and also know Kevin as the voice of ENCODA webinars and our behind-the-scenes podcast editor, but to start out, will you all three please introduce yourselves and give our audience a brief background on your roles? And ladies first, so we'll start with Dr. Pat. Great. Uh, thanks so much, Ginger, for having me. Um, my name is Dr. Deborah Pat, and I serve as an executive vice president of Texas Oncology. In the clinic, I'm a breast cancer specialist, and I also help direct policy, public policy for Texas Oncology. I help with that with the US Oncology Network, and I also oversee some business functions for the practice. Wonderful, thank you. And Dr. Brooks? Hi, yes, I'm Barry Brooks. I'm a medical oncologist in Texas Oncology as well. I work as medical director of oral oncolytics for US Oncology, and I've been working in public policy since 19, uh, well, since the Clinton administration when I formed a 5013C uh, corporation uh, to uh, advocate uh, in favor of uh, physician issues uh, uh, when the Clintons were trying to uh, change uh, healthcare. I met many uh, legislators and members of Congress then and have been involved in public policy on and off uh, uh, since uh, uh, that time. Uh, I plan to go to uh, Washington in May with U.S. Oncology and Dr. Pat uh, to uh, uh, do a little more uh, chatting with our members of Congress uh, uh, in a few weeks. Wonderful, thank you. And then Kevin, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Ginger. My name is Kevin Scorsone and I am the legislative and policy liaison for ENCODA. Um, I joined ENCODA almost two years ago now. And um, since the time I was hired, I've been tasked to um, get ENCODA's legislative efforts off the ground, um, which we've done a pretty good job of that so far. And I think we're going to continue uh, to excel in that field. Prior to joining ENCODA, uh, I worked for the New York State Legislature, uh, and from there, I uh, ran the political engagement department uh, for the North Carolina Nurses Association. So uh, my background has always been in the legislative affairs area uh, and state legislation and um, helping patients has uh, always been my passion. So grateful to ENCODA uh, to let me continue my legislative career uh, and begin this uh, legislative arm of our association. And um, thank you for having me on this side of the podcast for a change. So very fun. Wonderful. Thank you. And Ke Kevin also failed to mention he's a new dad. So he has a, a tiny little guy who's very cute. 
Um, but we'll, we'll get into the questions now. So I'm going to start with Dr. Pat, and I have a couple for you. Um, so first, can you start out by discussing the work that you did at the Texas legislature? Um, so I know you worked for legislative reform in the world of oncology, and how impactful um, was it when you testified in front of the Texas legislature? It's a great question, Ginger. And I think that um, being an advocate in the state legislature is really important uh, for the patients we serve. It's a critical place uh, for policy as it pertains to oncology care. So for cancer patients to continue to get the care that they need in the communities, we need to make sure that we're present at the legislature to advocate for appropriate policy Otherwise, um, it's likely that other barriers will be introduced um, between patients and the care that they need. So I think it's really important. Um, legislatures at the state level have different cadences of, um, of session, and Texas is in session for 120 days every other year. Um, during the 87th legislative session, I served as Texas Medical Association's chair for the Council on Legislation. Um, so I, I touched a lot of healthcare policy, but in particular, I was interested in issues that pertained to cancer policy because we've faced increasing difficulty in the environment by which we're trying to provide appropriate care for patients. So one of the places where we have encountered barrier after barrier is in oral oncolytics when we're giving oral therapies to patients. This is a really important way in which we give patients treatment now. And, and thankfully, because of modern cancer care innovation, oral cancer therapies are a way in which patients undergo cancer care like it's a chronic illness, like it's diabetes or hypertension. And really that paradigm has changed. But with the introduction of payers steering oral oncolytics to payer-aligned pharmacy benefit managers and specialty pharmacies, there are intermediaries in between doctors and, and their patients. Um, and so it can happen that patients have delays in receiving treatment. It can happen that patients are uh, given refills of medications that aren't the appropriate dose, um, taking into account new toxicities. Um, and so that steerage poses difficulties in patients getting the care they need. We worked um, at Texas Oncology and other stakeholders in cancer care to, um, to inform the Texas legislature of the hazards that exist when there's steerage of oral oncolytics to payer aligned pharmacy benefit managers and pharmacies um, to get past uh, an anti-steerage uh, piece of legislation, House Bill 1919, which prevents direction of, um, or mandatory direction of these scripts for oral oncolytics um, or oral therapies more broadly to payer association, associated and aligned pharmacies. The natural consequence of that passing is that it allows patients to get uh, therapies from their doctor. So when I see a patient and guide and direct their cancer therapy, I'm frequently giving them a prescription and then we'll see them in close follow-up. That way I can make sure that their toxicities are managed and, and understand if they require dose reductions and make them in real time. When I do that, I depend upon my pharmacy that's connected to my cancer center um, so I can write for a script with a dose adjustment. They can get that script filled and then begin to take the new medication. It's important for a number of reasons. 
One, when patients are on therapy, in order for it to be effective, they need to take it. And if they don't have their toxicities monitored, they won't take therapy. They'll become non-compliant and they won't benefit from that therapeutic intervention. Secondarily, these therapies are very expensive. And so it's wasteful to have them filled at higher doses when I've made dose adjustments um, and, and would lead to higher toxicity. So there are a lot of reasons why this needs to stay between doctors and patients. And this has been really helpful for us to um, provide real-time care for the patients we serve. So as a breast cancer specialist, frequently for CDK4-6 inhibitors to treat metastatic breast cancer, and these drugs have been a real gift to cancer patients. It's allowed them to live with advanced cancer with it chronically controlled and not be on chemotherapy. It's allowed them to do that for years um, and has been a big value add. So now when payers are, are prevented from mandating switches to associated specialty pharmacies and their associated pharmacy benefit managers, it allows me to make a dose adjustment in clinic when I see that the patient has leukopenia or when I see that the patient has diarrhea, I make a dose modification. They can then go and have that filled at my pharmacy and be able to start therapy right away. By having better control over patients and the exact dose that they need, and allow them to benefit from these therapeutic interventions. Um, so I think that's really meaningful. So we passed House Bill 1919, um, uh, which is, was anti-steerage. Another a piece of legislation that we passed is um, a, a, a piece of legislation dealing with prior authorization. So for many cancer specialists, as we've dealt with um, therapeutic interventions or diagnostic studies or um, uh, uh, radiation oncology interventions, we require on prior authorization from our payers. And while prior authorization has always existed and utilization management will always exist, that's a pendulum that has swung too far at becoming difficult and an inappropriate barrier for patients to get the care that they need. We passed a, a policy called the gold carding bill, which um, said for state plans, if a doctor has a good track record of getting approvals, then uh, uh, for state plans that, that payers couldn't mandate prior authorization. Because if we demonstrated a good track record, then those, um, uh, those prescriptions for therapies or for diagnostics should be automatically approved or gold carded. I believe that these two pieces of legislation make it easier for me to provide cancer care to the patients I serve in Texas, in their communities. And that that's meaningful for patients to live sort of the dream of modern cancer therapy where they're able to live with minimal impact of their cancer on their life. Wonderful. That is great work you're doing. So, so important. I came from a community oncology practice here in Florida prior to joining the ENCODA team. And I know that the prior authorization slash trying to transfer out to a middle order pharmacy often unfortunately became a nightmare for staff and then for our patients who, who are the ones who suffered in the end. So I, I love what you're doing. Um, and then can you also discuss what you think is the most potentially harmful thing, legislation or otherwise, that's currently being done to oncology patients and how legislation can end some of these tactics that have continue, continually harmed patients' efforts in their cancer fight? It's a great question. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face at the state level is payer mandates on white bagging pharmaceuticals to practices. 
We've seen that certain payers have begun this practice in certain states. Um, and this is where payers will mandate that a medication is filled from a specialty pharmacy um, outside your clinic and then is um, uh, shipped into your clinic to be administered to a patient. This poses a lot of challenges as again, I see a patient and then they get treatment real time. And every day when I'm in clinic, I make dose adjustments to patients, um, to the care that they're going to receive, taking into account specific issues that they're having that day, um, uh, laboratory values that I'm monitoring that day. So these are real time adjustments that we make. Having someone uh, plan weeks in advance a therapy doesn't permit me to make modifications real time, just in time that the patient needs to make sure that care is both safe and effective. So that's a limitation. In addition, if payers mandate white bagging pharmaceuticals, we understand that frequently patients are having to give their credit card number to the pharmacy, um, the outside pharmacy prior to their treatment. And so this poses additional barriers, roadblocks, uh, in place that make it difficult for us to deliver high quality cancer care in a timely fashion because we would be waiting on issues that are out of our control. All of these things would be really challenging if patients were to receive timely cancer care in the community. And so um, making sure that we advocate for policies to prohibit white bagging mandates are really important for patients to get the care that they need in the timely fashion to make sure that we can make real-time adjustments. So in, in this effort, I will say whether it's steerage or white bagging or any of these issues, um, we as oncologists advocate for our patients, but we're small in number overall. And by and large, aside from Dr. Brooks, <laughs> we don't spend a lot of time at the legislature. And so we really need to think about how we work with partners. I'll say ENCODE has been a great partner in that regard. Um, COA has been a great partner in that regard. The, um, true, uh, the um, pharmacists uh, for truth and transparency have been great partners in that regard. Um, and really we need partners predominantly in the pharmacy space um, to heighten awareness of these issues because a recurring theme that I see as I talk to our very well-intended, very educated and thoughtful elected officials is that cancer care and healthcare more broadly is complicated and understanding all of these machinations about patients getting timely and appropriate complex cancer care is challenging for them to understand. And so we need to spend the time at the legislature educating our elected officials on how patients get the care that they need. And that way we can be effective advocates in prohibiting some of these policies that would um, otherwise pose barriers to the patients we serve. Okay, wonderful, great, great points, thank you. And then Dr. Brooks, you have been such an important part of the growth of ENCODA's legislative efforts. So can you talk to us about how impressed you've been with the growth and commitment within the last year, and then how you see ENCODA continuing to grow their efforts in the future? Uh, thanks for asking, uh, uh, Ginger. Uh, I would like to just back up and just, I was gonna layer on an example from, uh, you know, my current practice uh, today. Yeah. Uh, I have a young woman uh, who I prescribe Versinio. It is part of the class of CDK4-6 inhibitors that Dr. Pat alluded to earlier. 
uh, four weeks ago. Uh, she has re also received, she has a, a very complicated breast cancer. She's 38 years old. She's already had her ovaries removed and it's taking, uh, uh, or is to take Versinio and uh, uh, an anti-estrogen or a, an anti-hormonal uh, product plus the Versinio, but I prescribed it four weeks ago. And uh, her uh, specialty pharmacy approved it because she's clearly on label for the medication, but they have still not delivered it to her in four weeks. She still does not have the medicine in her possession. Uh, they have uh, given various excuses about uh, uh, logistic problems, but it's just a delay in delivering expensive medication that is needed uh, by this young woman. And if we had been able to fill that in our pharmacy uh, in Texas Oncology, she could have had the medication when I started uh, uh, her uh, other medications four weeks ago. This is just an example of a delay in care that uh, may be, uh, you know, just poor function uh, on the uh, uh, pharmacy benefit manager's part, or maybe partly because as long as they don't give her the medicine, they've saved money for that period of time. Who knows what the reasons for the delay are? But it is a problem, and uh, it, it is an illustration of what Deborah was talking about. As to ENCODA's progression with legislative function, and we went from zero to 60 in a very short period of time, and we have had wonderful uh, success with our relatively small committee, and we've generated uh, uh, a very fine uh, tool. Uh, to follow state legislation. And Kevin uh, has had a huge uh, role in building that when we have this state map that when you hover over each state, it will uh, uh, give you a list of the uh, recently passed and pending state legislations that have to do with cancer care, particularly oral uh, delivery to cancer patients. And give summaries of the uh, actual uh, bills that are pending in the form of what uh, we refer to as a uh, dinner table explanation for what the bill does. Then we have an explanation for what the bill uh, means to us and to uh, cancer patients in the industry. And then we have a copy of the actual bill that is on the map of the country. And we hope to coordinate with other cancer organizations uh, such as COA and ASCO uh, to build a, a, this tool into their websites. Uh, there's a, a, a danger of, of uh, us uh, sort of all trying to reinvent the wheel here. And I would like to see us uh, coordinate with other uh, uh, cancer organizations uh, to get a common tool so that we can all easily follow legislation at the state level. At the federal level, uh, uh, committees like uh, the one Deborah runs for Texas Oncology are extremely uh, polished and effective in, in keeping us up to date on federal legislations. But the state is uh, pretty much a plate of spaghetti uh, and very hard uh, to manage. And uh, this, this tool that Kevin and his team have, uh, have created has just been outstanding. But we had uh, at our last meeting, the uh, 
Arkansas assistant uh, district attorney uh, who had uh, uh, challenged uh, the PBMs. Or I believe someone said it was like the 20th time that someone had challenged a PBM and they went all the way to the Supreme Court and uh, actually you know, won against the PBMs and uh, sort of uh, uh, gave us hope that we would be able to have more uh, self-direction uh, in our various uh, uh, cancer practices to take better care of our patients and not be so much under the thumb of the pharmacy benefit managers and their uh, uh, draconian uh, uh, systems that they often uh, apply. Wonderful, thank you. And I think your illustration speaks so well to the importance of what um, every everyone on this podcast is is trying to do. Um, and Dr. Oh, yes. Can I just elaborate for a minute that um, to echo what Dr. Brooks said, um, I think that it's really hard for community oncologists and and pharmacists to um, uh, to advocate. And so we need help, especially with, as he so eloquently put it, state policy is sort of like you know a, a, a plate of spaghetti in that it's highly variable, um, it changes all the time. It's hard for us to keep up because our core competency is really caring for cancer patients. And so I think that um, uh, Kevin's work uh, on the ENCODA state legislative tracker is such an amazing tool for clinicians, for pharmacists to be able to follow pertinent state health policy, understand what's going on in their state and how they can act to influence legislation to advocate on behalf of their patients. So we all need a little help to be better because being advocates isn't our core competency, um, uh, but we need help because we have to have a, a role in that space Otherwise, our patients are gonna be subject to a lot of policies that would pose barriers in them getting the care that they need. Thank you, thank you for adding that. I think that is always my question is, I, I may not be or have the opportunity to be on Capitol Hill or in Washington DC advocating, but what, what could I as a pharmacist in Jacksonville, Florida be doing? Um, it's always always something that I wonder and how, how you can really from home or from your own state make a difference for your patients. So, so if either of you have anything to add to that question too, always looking for that answer. I think that um, uh, individuals and practices can stay abreast of their local state health policies and understand what's going on in their state by following ENCODA's legislative tracker, see what's pending uh, in your state, connect with uh, elected officials, and with organizations like ENCODA who are seeking to, um, to advocate for appropriate policy uh, or serve as a resource for appropriate policy formulation. We have access to model language um, and understand some of the uh, pros and cons of different strategies um, to be an advocate for our patients. So I think that um, that's an easy way that individuals can become more involved without being policy savants. Wonderful. And then with such busy schedules, so I'd, I'd like to pose this to both of you. Um, I'm fascinated that you both find time to be a voice in the legislative arena for patients. So where did that inspiration and focus come from and why is it so important? And I know Dr. Brooks has given a good example already, but to advocate for cancer patients. 
Well, I'll say Dr. Brooks and I uh, both have the privilege of working uh, in Texas oncology, and uh, we have the privilege of working for Dr. Steve Paulson, who's the president and CEO of Texas Oncology, who says to us often that we are either at the table or on the menu. Um, and, and that's true here. But what I'll say is that patients are on the menu too. And if we are not there helping formulate effective policies for patients to get the care that they need, patients will suffer. They will not get timely therapy and they will have adverse outcomes, including treatment abandonment and even death if they have inappropriate barriers that prohibit them from getting cancer care that they need in their communities. So we absolutely just must show up to continue to serve patients. Thank you. And Dr. Brooks, how about you? Well, for my part, uh, I think that uh, we need uh, a better insurance product uh, that patients, uh, when they get a serious illness, do not need to constantly worry about co-pays and co-insurance and their burden for the care. Health insurance should be such that when you get seriously ill, the health insurance pays for the vast majority of all that. Uh, and patients having hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars per month in coinsurance burden when they are undergoing cancer therapy uh, is ridiculous. That's not insurance, that's partial insurance. And, and, and we really need to have a fundamental rethinking of how cancer is, uh, is paid for. And, uh, real insurance. As far back as the 1990s, I have been concerned that they were going to change insurance. And the idea is that if patients have skin in the game, that they will be more frugal in using health care. But when you have already having a diagnosed or an established diagnosis of cancer, uh, skin in the game is a given. And the health insurance should cover those costs. Right now, Health insurance does a very poor job of that, including Medicare, and, and we just need to do better. Yes, for sure. Thank you. And now, Kevin, I want to turn it over to you briefly and have you talk about how people can access the state legislative tracker and why the committee felt that this was such an important project to get done. Yeah, thanks, Ginger. And I, I just want to you know, thank Dr. Brooks and Dr. Pat for their, for their gracious comments regarding the tracker you know for me personally it's been a real treat and an honor to work as closely as I have with Dr. Brooks he's taught me a lot just about the way to think and the way to uh, to uh, strategize especially uh, in the legislative arena and then uh, to have Nancy Egerton lead our committee uh, she's been a great asset as well and now with Dr. Pat becoming such a supporter of uh, what we've been doing uh, I am really um, really humbled by all that so it's been great. And in terms of our tracker, um, if you want to have access to the tracker, it's as simple as logging on to the ENCODA website. If you are an ENCODA member, um, you're automatically granted access to uh, all the information that the tracker has to offer, uh, what Dr. Brooks mentioned um, earlier. If you're not an ENCODA member, uh, you have two options, either A, sign up to become an ENCODA member, which is uh, complimentary, or B, um, we have an option for you to reach out directly to me and we can have a conversation about uh, providing access to you uh, for use of the tracker. Uh, the committee just felt from, from, from the jump, from the day we started the committee that we had to be 
as educational as possible. We had to provide the educational resources to our membership uh, and give them all of the details uh, regarding legislative oncology and how it impacts them, uh, their practice and their patients. Uh, we felt that that was super important. We feel that this tracker showcases everything in the legislative arena that you might need to know to better educate yourself and your patients. And for me, having that uh, state legislative passion, this has been a real treat for me to put this together and have it available now um, to our membership. And um, as Dr. Brooks and Dr. Pat mentioned, we're happy to be able to maintain this and be out in the forefront and being a leader in this space, but collaboration is always super important. We have to always remember what's best for the patients. And uh, there's organizations that can complement what we do and we can complement what they do. And that's been a reason for a lot of our tracker showcases and showing this to as many people as possible because we really believe in what we're doing. And uh, this is just the beginning for us as a committee and as an organization with our legislative efforts, but it wouldn't be possible without uh, it wouldn't be possible without people like Dr. Brooks, Nancy, Ben Jones, Holly Books, the rest of our committee, and now Dr. Pat, who's been such a great advocate for what we're doing as well. Thank you, Kevin, and great work to you and all of the committee. It's um, quite quite the tool, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. Um, and collaboration is key, I would say as well. So now we'll move on to our final fun question of the podcast, and we mix, we mix it up every week this season. Um, so we, we have one themed towards legislation, sort of, this week, but we always associate legislative and government affairs with history and politics. So I'm going to ask each, all three of you, each of you, um, to tell us who is your favorite legislative or political figure throughout history and why they stand out to you. So we will start with Dr. Pat. Um, that's a tough question, and there are many. Um, I will say Winston Churchill, uh, because uh, he has many great um, uh, uh, Churchillisms quotations that I find I draw from often um, as I think about policy. Um, to name a few, uh, if you feel like you're going through hell, keep going. And it's a, good, a good country song too. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, that um, uh, success is the ability to get up after each repeated failure with no lack of enthusiasm. Uh, so I, I really like Winston Churchill um, and uh, find I draw from his wisdom often. Good choice for sure. And then Dr. Brooks, how about you? I was on mute. I'm sorry. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is, is my guy. Uh, and uh, it has to do with the fact that uh, uh, like Churchill, uh, he was a brave in the face of adversity. His own party was constantly undermining him. His cabinet was at war with him. Uh, the, the United States was divided against itself. And he somehow brought all of this together. And I do believe if we had not had a, an Abraham Lincoln, that, that the Civil War might have ended differently. Uh, but his Emancipation Proclamation 
and his leadership of the country was amazing. If you read about his, his, the kind of internecine uh, strife he had within his, uh, his cabinet uh, and, and all the backbiting and all the criticisms and the horrible things that they said to him uh, in the newspapers uh, and so on. Uh, and also, I, I have some kindred spirit with him. He, he lost a child uh, 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 to uh, illness and uh, uh, he, he just kept going. Uh, I mean, the guy, he, he, he is the probably most po important political figure in our history. And uh, I do think uh, that uh, reading about him always helps me. Uh, I would say this, though, for people that are interested in public policy, Henry Kissinger wrote a very dense but very interesting book called Diplomacy. And he's written a subsequent book uh, that, that's a, a, a a follow-on to diplomacy, that if you really want to understand the history of public mm -hmm. policy, you have to go read those books because they are amazing. Okay, great, great choice. And thank you for the book recommendations. We'll add those to our show notes on the podcast too, so people can, can look them up and find them if they're interested in reading them. And then Kevin, um, I have a feeling I know who you're going to pick, but um, so yeah, it would be Abraham Lincoln for me actually as well. So, and I think that's what maybe why I respect and like Dr. Brooks so much, maybe great minds think alike, but, um, I'm also very, I'll, I'll go in a different, uh, route. I'm fascinated, um, with the turmoil and the, uh, and, and the way that the country came together and at times came apart in that era from 1956 to 1974. So as a history buff, I've always, been fascinated with that Eisenhower, JFK, Nixon, uh, LBJ era, and I guess more contemporarily, uh, I've read a lot about George W. Bush and uh, John McCain, um, and I worked on uh, President Bush's brother's campaign when he ran for President Jeb in 2016, so I, I guess I have a little bit of familiarity, a very small amount with the family, so I I do uh, respect their work. Um, so I, I, I guess I would say Lincoln would be the answer, but um, in terms of the people that I've studied, it would be that group of uh, gentlemen that have uh, contributed to our country. All right. So I expected your answer to be JFK, Kevin. So thank you. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pat and Dr. Brooks, for joining us today on the PQI podcast. It's been very informative for our listeners, and we hope to have you back in the future to give us additional legislative updates. Thank you, Ginger. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Brooks, Dr. Pat, and Kevin. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple, and remember to follow along. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. And we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.